You may take a seat. Well, as I look around, there's a, there's a few visitors, and I think since we are at the halfway point of this Bible series with, with the book of Ruth, and since even not only the visitors, some of the, the regular attenders and the members have uh, been away on holidays, let me just quickly summarize uh, chapter 1 and 2 and uh, introduce chapter 3 for us so that we have a sense of where the story has been, where it's going, so that we uh, can all be on the, somewhat on the same page. If you, guessing most of you, even if you haven't been attending and hearing this Bible series, you know the story of Ruth. Let me just quickly remind you, uh, Ruth chapter 1 begins with this heart-wrenching, uh, bitter providence that befalls this man called Elimelech's family and himself. There is a famine in Bethlehem in the house of bread, ironically, and Elimelech moves his whole family to Moab. And as we saw, this was not his brightest moment. This was not the, his brightest decision in life. And we saw that the, the, the heart-wrenching story of how uh, Elimelech died and then his two sons, uh, Malan and Kilian, also died, leaving Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, um, Ruth and Orpah, widowed three tombstones in the land of Moab. And in chapter 1, we see how the Lord uh, breaks or finishes the, the famine that was happening in, in Bethlehem after 10 years. And Naomi decides to go back to, to Bethlehem, to, to the promised land. And he, she brings uh, Ruth and Orpah with her. On that, on that crossroad, these three widows uh, are faced with a decision. Uh, Orpah decides to stay in her land, in the land of her fathers, uh, of her father and of her mother. But Ruth makes uh, a very interesting decision she, she would rather stay with Naomi than to go and seek her best interests she does so by that famous passage that we know entreat me not to leave you entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you she's basically committing herself not only to Naomi for the rest of her life, but to the cause of Naomi. But as Naomi in chapter 2 arrives at, or is about to arrive before, just before chapter 2 at, at Bethlehem, she makes this sad confession. The Lord, the Almighty, has dealt very bitterly with me. She no longer wants to be known as Naomi, which means sweet or pleasant, but she wants to be known as Mara, bitter. And we saw, didn't we, that although she had this sense of, about herself, that even the narrator, under the inspiration of the Spirit, refuses to call her Mara on the rest of the account, because even though she perceives herself to have been uh, dealt a bitter hand by the Lord, the narrator knows better. He knows what really is going on. In chapter 2, the mercy of God starts breaking through the bright enough that even Naomi 
in our dark, dark places, unable to, to carry on in darkness. He sees it. We meet Boaz, a man of wealth, a man of God, someone of stature uh, in, the, in the land. We see Re Ruth taking refuge under the wings of God in a foreign land and how God wonderfully provides for her. The Lord's kindness, as, Ru as Naomi says, has not been forsaken to the living or to the dead so if you were to draw a lesson and we drew many lessons from these two chapters but i think the main one is the lesson that is containing those words of the hymn you fearful saints fresh courage take the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head and in chapter two we started to see this happening and then we get to chapter 3. And here, last week, we saw a few different points. Let me just remind you, uh, because I do believe that chapter 3 can be misinterpreted, misapplied, can be used in very wrong ways. Let me just remind you of, those, uh, uh, of that preamble, uh, that introduction from last week. That not everything that we read in biblical narratives is normative. Not everything that we read in, in biblical narratives is to be attempted by, by us. Narrators, the biblical narratives, are simply describing events, not necessarily prescribing activities. And although, yes, this story is filled with uh, situations where... Uh, our 21st century minds with all the nonsense that goes around, uh, uh, cringes and, and thinks, ooh, I don't, I, I don't know uh, where this is going. We need to realize that actually we're far removed from these situations and we need to understand the culture of the day. And we looked at this last week as we went through chapter, or chapter 3, verse 1 to 5, as we saw Naomi's plan uh, being brought to pass. And today we see how or being, uh, Naomi's plan being made, and she's telling her plan to Ruth. And now we come to verse 6, where the plan comes to fruition, where Ruth agrees to do what her mother-in-law uh, has planned and to put it into effect up to a point. As we will see, Ruth didn't follow exactly everything that Naomi had told her to do. But she did uh, follow the, the plan. We read in verse 7 that after Boaz had eaten, this was planned out by Naomi, had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, which means quietly. She came, she came very quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. The party was over. It had been a good evening. After a long day of work, after a, a long night of celebrating and feasting, Boaz must have been feeling very good about his life and about what was going on. So he goes and lies down next to the grain, the grain pile, and he falls asleep. In the middle of the night, though, something disturbs him. We read in verse 8, It happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet, and he said, Who are you? Who are you? And again, you might say he didn't recognize her because he was 
midnight, there was not much light, and that might be true, and that might be the reason why he didn't recognize her. But as we spoke about last week, the, the garments that um, Naomi had told Ruth to put on uh, convey a sense of, of heaviness. They would be um, bridal garments, and bridal garments in the Middle East, unlike the bridal garments of our day, which reveal too much, bridal garments in the, in the Middle East tend to conceal more than they reveal. That's why Jacob found himself marrying Leah before he married Rachel. It's not that he was aloof or distracted. It was just hard with, with all those layers of clothing. And that is, I believe, part of the reason why he doesn't recognize Ruth immediately. And Ruth has to tell him, I am Ruth. I'm your maid servant. But here, surprise of surprises, although Ruth is following the plan with, from Naomi, she starts to put her spin on it. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Instead of leaving the situation dangerously ambiguous, as uh, we saw last week with, uh, that Naomi's plan would bring about, a woman of character like Ruth, she actually takes a step forward. She makes her intentions clear. This is why I'm here. I am here so that you might fulfill this duty, so that you would take, marry me. So my goal is that you would commit to marrying me. No ambiguousness in Ruth's action. No matter what some commentators might say about this passage. And this symbol of covering one, one person under the, your wing is a symbol of marriage. We see that in, if you would turn there, we, we won't today, but you can do it at home, to Ezekiel 16, where this uh, figure, this kind of uh, illustrative uh, action is applied to God in relationship to his people. That it is the equivalent, if you were to say this in modern day English, in 21st century uh, uh, culture, she, what she's saying here, put a ring, take this ring, give, it's the equivalent, covering one person, uh, someone, a man covering a woman in this case, is the equivalent of putting a ring on uh, an engagement ring in our own culture. Ruth wanted Boaz to marry her. She wanted him to provide refuge for her and for Naomi. We saw then with last week that there was this term, Hebrew, goel, uh, that is here translated as, um, as close relative. Uh, I, I prefer the, the, the AV translation here that says uh, kinsman redeemer, that the, because the idea here is that it's not just a family member. It's someone that is uniquely... Uh, positioned in the, in, the, in the lineage to perform a duty. But as we will see now, although he is uniquely positioned, he's not actually liable to perform this duty. He's not, under certain circumstances, yes, he would be obliged, there would be an obligation uh, in hi on him to buy his relatives back if they sold themselves into slavery or if, they, if the family member had died. Um, but in this case, there was no legal obligation on Boaz to act in this way. 
Otherwise, there would be no need for this kind of elaborate strategy on the part of Naomi. Does that make sense? Why this elaborate plan if Boaz was under obligation? Naomi could just go to Ruth and say, no, actually, go to the marketplace, find him there in front of everyone, and call him to, to task. Ruth could have simply go, called him and, uh, to task and say, do what you're supposed to do. Boaz, as we've been seeing, he's a man of, he was a man of character, a man who did the right thing, a man who followed through with his obligations. He, he was someone who certainly uh, would do the right thing if he was obliged to do it. But he is not under any legal obligation because Ruth, technically, she's not an Israelite. Blood in an ethical, ethical term. Neither Ruth was obliged to marry him, neither Boaz was obliged to marry her. But Ruth is asking her, asking him, to fulfill the intention of the law. What she's saying to him is, although you're not under any obligation, the spirit of the law is this. I'm asking you to fulfill it for me. In fact, you could say that Ruth is more than just concerned about herself. She's actually concerned about Naomi. That's been her, her motivation all along. That's been what she has been looking for. So Ruth's request required quite a bit of audacity, of boldness, of risk-taking, especially because Naomi's plan was, was risky in itself. Think about how many things could have gone wrong with this plan. All the different possibilities that could have happened that night that would have marred Ruth's reputation for the rest of her life in Bethlehem. But she took the risk, she went, and she even went further than the plan. Naomi's plan only said, be silent, let Boaz take the initiative. Look at verse 4. He will tell you what to, you should do. When he wakes up, when he sees you, when don't say a word. He will tell you, verse 4, what to do. But Ruth doesn't want to leave anything to chance. She departs from Naomi's in, instruction. And I think this is because she's wholly, completely devoted to Naomi. She has a concern with her, with this old, old widow, with this mother-in-law, that propels her to do all these actions. From, verse, from chapter 1, why does she want to stay with, with Naomi? She had a love for her mother-in-law. You, you, you see this. And in, cha in chapter 2, you see this. And we, you see this at the beginning of chapter 3 as well. If her plan is successful, if Boaz fulfills this role of Goel to her, Naomi would be as well in, in a situation of being provided for. Naomi's more open scheme might have been a little bit more, provide a few different possible outcomes, 
that might have even reached the same goal. But Ruth knew that her future didn't ultimately depend on her, uh, on her ability to formulate uh, a plan or, and execute it. She trusted the Lord. And this is where, after saying this, verse 10, this is where Boaz comes in and says, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. This starts off nicely. This is, this is just the kind of answer that she, that she was looking for. This, this is a, a really nice way of, of starting this, uh, this, the reply. But also, it shows us, doesn't it, by calling her my daughter, that Boaz had absolutely no intention of taking advantage of the situation, of taking advantage of this young woman, that he, that he wouldn't take advantage of her. On the contrary, he declared himself willing to take the risk that marriage to Ruth would entail. As we will see in chapter 4, this kind of arrangement would produce difficulties or uh, bring unnecessary strain in the finances and in, in, in the, the social standing of this other nearer kinsman, so much so that he re rejects it, that he's not willing to go forward with it, but here Boaz is saying, if he does not, I'll do it. With all the risks that may come out of it. With all the, 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 the potential liabilities, whether financially or so, financial or social, I will do it. And he compliments her. We looked at this briefly last week, but he compliments her. He says to her, that he has shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich, which just emphasizes that Ruth was under no obligation to marry him. Ruth was under no obligation to, to have this leveret, as it was known, marriage with him. She's, it's her decision as such. And, and Boaz compliments her. That even here, she's showing kindness. More kindness, in fact, than at the beginning. And I think the beginning here is back in chapter 1, when she professes those beautiful words, entreat me not to leave you. There is a sense where she is being showcasing a, a kind of covenant kindness that is so unusual. She left her own household, she left her own country, she left her own family, her own God, so that she would be there for Naomi. That's kindness. And now she's demonstrating that kindness by going still a step forward and being willing to marry for the good of Naomi, for Naomi's sake as well. I know this is completely uh, unfathomable. In our, in our modern day society, ultra-individualistic society. What? Such a great life decision? But we need to wonder, don't we? Have we gone too far in our individualism in our society? It is noteworthy as well. As we think about the, 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 the intertextuality, how this passage plays with the rest of scripture it is noteworthy as well that when you turn to proverbs uh, chapter 31 that speaks about this virtuous uh, idyllic uh, woman 
this woman of character, uh, that Ruth actually fulfills a lot of these qualities, if not all of them. In Proverbs 31, it says that a woman of character is wo a woman that her workers pray, her works, her actions praise her in the gates of the city. That's a woman of character. When people look at her and, and they praise how she behaves, her demeanor. And using very similar language, Boaz here says of her that the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. The people of my gates, the people that live within the city that, that I'm an inhabitant of, they know your works and they praise you for it. And you might wonder if, if it was that unanimous of praise, especially given the, the attitude that is that this other close relative will later have. But nonetheless, her reputation was preceding her. She made herself Naomi's servant. She worked without complaint in the heat, in the scorching heat of the Middle East to provide food for her mother-in-law. She, and she humbly devoted herself to this course of action, and people were noticing it. And at this point, you might think, and I've already alluded to it, but you might think that this story is, wow, it's going very well. You can almost hear the church bells ringing, the marriage is, is set up, the, the wedding march is starting to play, the marriage is coming, but there's a twist still. Otherwise, the story would have uh, finished here. There is still another twist. Although Boaz was a close relative, there is apparently, as I've already alluded to, a closer relative. And Boaz says this to her. Now, it is true that I'm a close relative, verse 12. However, there is a relative that is closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative to you. Good, great. Let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you. As the Lord lives, and he makes this promise, as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie down until morning. Although Boaz was the close, a close relative, he says, there is one that is closer than I. And by, by way of rights, this other closer relative would have a, uh, a better claim at performing the service for Naomi and her family. And this must have been bitter, blow to Ruth who at this point was surely feeling like uh, the plan was going great. She must have been asking herself, will I have to go through this uh, threshing floor situation again? Boaz says no. He says, I'll take care of it. I'll, I'll approach the man. I will do everything. And if the other man does not want, well, I'll do it for him, it, for you. One way or the other or another. At the end of this chapter, you, you start to get the sense that Ruth and Naomi would certainly be taken care of. And we'll finish here. We'll look next week at the, at the, the ending of the chapter and, and the, Ruth taking the, this huge grain offering from, uh, from Boaz back to Naomi. But what lessons can we learn from this? I've kind of been just paraphrasing this passage to you, trying to uh, shed some light on what's happening here. But what lessons 
can we learn? What, can, what instruction can we take from, from it? How can we see the Lord's will for our lives in, in this passage? How is this relevant, you might ask? Well, alongside many of the things that we have already been looking at, uh, the Lord's overruling, the Lord's overruling even of bad mistakes, and how God turns things that were meant for evil and did, uh, done in, in sin for the good of his people. There are lessons even just in this short passage. I think Ruth chapter 3 compels us to ask a question. What kind of risks am I willing to take? What am I willing to risk? And for what am I willing to risk? You see, Ruth took a great risk to do what was right. What kind of risks do we take? People face risks every day, don't we? There are people just for the thrill of the adrenaline rush. They, they, they'll go in on dangerous uh, expeditions just for the sake of having fun. There are people who, who go to great risks in order to receive a promotion, in order to find that job, in order to, 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 uh, to put up, uh, to, to get a better, uh, to get ahead in life. People put up with discomforts, with, uh, with different kinds of things. They risk it all. What are we willing to risk? And again, I, I, I know this might sound, uh, because I, I often say it, but one of the greatest cultural shocks for me, coming from Portugal to, to England, is the risk-averse nature that, we, that I find in believers. This, this aversion to take risk for the sake of the gospel. For most of us, it has become kind of a norm. Let me not risk it. And I'm not criticizing this culture. I love, uh, in many ways, uh, the English culture. But it, it was a cultural shock to me. Our unwillingness, our, our risk-averseness. And the reality is you see that in church life. It's not just out there with all the policies and guidelines and with all the, the, the safeguardings and all the health and safety things. It is within here. It is in our, in our, in our midst. It's one of those places where, where culture has certainly affected the church. What kind of risks have you taken recently for the sake of the gospel? where you put yourself right there in the firing line, perhaps of losing uh, uh, a friendship, perhaps of, of losing face in front of your co-workers, losing uh, relationships with family members, losing a job. Have you done anything risky for the sake of the Lord? And I'm not telling you that it is the right thing for you to do, but if our Christian life involves no risk-taking, is, is that a the way that we see Christian life being portrayed in the New Testament? A kind of middle class, 
kind of life with no risk taking, just very uh, nice and comfortable? Or do we, do we have a, a, a disconnect between the life of Christians throughout the world, actually, where they risk persecution, where, where they, they risk even their lives, and the way that we behave here, where seemingly we, we have absolutely no big risks, except maybe a few mild inconveniences here and there. And yet we seem to not want to take risks, especially when it comes to sharing our faith. When it comes to telling others what we are all about. Francis Schaeffer, a theologian of the 20th century, he used to call it a guilty silence. A guilty silence that we have. Spurgeon used to talk how, how in, the, in, the, in the judgment day, uh, the people we knew, the people we came across, the people we worked with, the people in our families, our children, our parents, our, whoever it is, they, they will point the finger at us and say, why didn't you tell me? And why would, didn't you tell him? What was the excuse? Not to share your faith. Had Naomi had the same kind of attitude and made up excuses, and she had much more to risk, it would have ended up very badly. So what kind of risks do we take? What kind of people can we reach if we take personal risks? That's one. Perhaps we'll, I'm still going to touch on it briefly in a, in a moment. Well, let me switch this around. Let me touch on that. You see, Ruth was living by faith and not by sight in many ways. That's why Boaz honors her. That's why Boaz is so caught up with her. You could say, I know I've, I've been trying to avoid the love story uh, spin on, on the book of Ruth, but you could actually say that if, Na if Boaz has some form of, of uh, love attraction for, for Ruth, it's not because she's good looking. There's no, I, no inclination or no indication of that in the text. The thing that has been on and on attracting or, 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 or moving Boaz towards Ruth, it's her character. She did not seek young men, whether rich or poor. She sought uh, the redemption that Boaz could offer and the supply that Boaz could offer to Naomi as well as to her. And this is a, a story, a lesson for us. We are often driven in, that, in the same sense of, of, of taking risks, it is the same sense. It's this uh, tendency that we have to, to look out for ourselves, this inward, immediate gratification of our culture. We are not willing to take risks now because uh, I don't want to bear the pain, even if it's just for a little while. Even though I know that if this would come to pass, the gratification at the end would be much greater. 
We often don't want to do what is hard, what is risky, what is laborious, what is difficult. And I think that the issue is, is living by faith or living by sight. Do we live a life to glorify Christ or to glorify ourselves? I know we are all too sophisticated of Christians to say that we live life to glorify ourselves. But in practice, what is it that motivates you? If not in words. When it comes to our choices, no matter how large, no matter how small, what is the, the primary motivating factor that moves us to make decisions? There's an example of this in the Bible, or a bad example, or a, a non-commendable example of this in Scripture. In Genesis 13, Lot, this, uh, this man who lives uh, in, the, in, the, in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, he chooses what is seemingly to the sight better. He chooses for the wrong reasons. Bishop J.C. Ryle, he said this about him. He chose by sight and not by faith. He asked no counsel of God to preserve him from mistakes. He looked to the things of time and not of eternity. He thought of, this worldly, of his worldly prophet and not of his soul. He considered only what would help him in this life. He forgot the solemn business of the life to come. This was a bad beginning, says J.C. Ryle. And before you say, oh, but that was Lot. Christians wouldn't do that. Lot is commanded as a believer in the New Testament. His problem was that he didn't have a heart of a pilgrim. He didn't have this... Uh, idea in printed in his mind that we are sojourners in this world, that this world has nothing to offer us of worth. Let me tell you a story, and you'll see how this affects us in, in a way that, that, that is so pervasive and we don't even think about it. How are this culture that we live in, in Christian circles, has changed so dramatically? It's a real story. It's not a made-up story. It's the story of John Newton, the famous pastor that wrote Amazing Grace. One day, he was called to visit a family that had just suffered a huge tragedy in their lives. Her, their house burned down. They lost everything. They escaped only with their lives because of a devastating fire. And as he came as a pastor to that to the to visit that family, and they were in tears, and they were uh, completely overwhelmed. He gets into that meeting place, into that place in, where he meets with them, and he says, I give you joy, madam. And she looked at him. What joy? What joy that all my property has been consumed? Can you imagine me as your pastor coming in and saying as, at the, the sight of losing all your worldly goods, me coming in and saying, oh, I come and bring you joy. You would be terrified. You would, you would probably, uh, I'm not even going to go there, but you wouldn't like that. But here's John Newton. That's what he did. And what is, does he answer to the woman that is puzzled at this, I bring you joy? He says, no, but joy that you have so much property 
she asked, what joy that all my property has been consumed? He says, oh no, but joy that you have so much property that fire cannot touch. And immediately her demeanor changed. Why? Because she understood there's some property, there's some things that I possess that this world cannot take away. That no fire can ever touch. Why? Because she had a soldier in the spirit. Because she understood that there is more to this life than what meets the eye. There are eternal realities. There are, there are, there are more than the fleeting, frailing and disappearing things of this world. This world is just a veneer for eternity. One day it will be rent away and we will be in the, for all eternity. Whether in hell or heaven, the Lord knows. But we need to give th thought to these things. Let us not be blinded by this world. Let us take risks. Let us look by faith. Let us look to the heavenly city that is to come. Because the Lord is instructing us to do so, even from this passage. That's, Naomi's risks here are instructive to us. How do we see this kind of, of worldly thinking in our midst? This is another point here. You remember last week I told you about some parallels between this passage and uh, the story of Lot and his daughters. So Moab, this, the nation from which Ruth came, uh, is the fruit of an incestuous relationship. And in a very much similar situation, a man dr uh, having drunk and being cheerful, uh, this Moabite woman, instead of doing the wrong thing, as Lot's uh, daughters did, she does the right thing. But there is another parallel that is equally extensive and impressive that also presents to us this diverging, contrasting features, which is the story of Tamar and Judah. You know the story in the Old Testament, right? Ja uh, Tamar, Tamar, Tam Tamar, Tamar. Um, she's a Canaanite woman. She's been widowed. She's been promised marriage by Judah, marriage to, to one of her, his sons. But she takes, takes her in her own hands to, to follow, to, to, find, to devise a plan. She removes her widow garments, as we read in Genesis 38. She covers herself with a veil, and she presents herself to Judah as a prostitute. And we know what happened there. And although Tamar, Tamar's intentions, sorry, I'm really struggling with her name, Tamar's intentions were good, in the sense that she just wanted to, for Judah to do the right thing, the way she went about it was the worst of ways, immoral and sin, sinful to say the least. So Tamar and Ruth find themselves in very similar situations, but one does the both for good intentions, but one goes about it in the wrong way and the other goes about it in the right way. And I'm, I think we're meant to see here that we are, or we are to be reminded by this that good intentions are never enough in this life. Many in the church today, although they have desires that are proper and good, you want to see the church full. 
You want to see the church thriving. You want to see uh, the, the, the ministries going well. You want to present results. But then you start becoming laxer and laxer, more, more, more unguarded and unguarded with, and careless with how things are done. Just for the sake of the results. Just for the sake of seeing the, the results in front of you. May, very little concern to do things in a godly way. The end is all that matters. Then when things go wrong, the excuse is always, oh, I had good intentions. But in Christianity, ends never justify the means. Why? Because again, we are pilgrims here. It's not about this world. It's not about this time. It's about how we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ for the world to come. So the end results here are never the end results. Means don't justify the ends because the, the ends are not, the mean, the, are not really the ends. The ends are in heaven, in the city to come. Again, this, this, is, this is what we need to learn and see that good intentions are not enough. Ends never justify the means. But finally, my brothers and sisters, as I said, that the story of Ruth and Boaz is not necessarily a love story. I know someone is going to be uh, re reminding herself of a conversation, or himself, uh, of a conversation we had a few weeks ago. And I said, well, I don't really see uh, Ruth and Boaz's story as, a, as a, a romantic story. At least it does not fit the romantic uh, genre that we are used to from Hollywood movies and, and those kind of things. It certainly wouldn't be the classic romantic kind of story, would it? But there is a love story in, the, in this passage. And I, I would submit to you that it's not between Ruth and Boaz. It is a love story of a God who loves his strange sheep. A God who loves those who have put themselves in situations that they cannot take themselves out. It is the love of God for those who are unlovable. Like Ruth, according to the world, Ruth would be unlovable. She's a Moabite. She's a Gentile. Naomi is someone who left this land to go into Gentilic country. But yet, the love story is there. God loves her, them. You could say that it's a whole love that will not let them go. In spite of all their actions. And that is the story of the Old Testament and of the New Testament. That is the story of Scripture. In spite of centuries of history of rebellion and idolatry, in spite of all the sin, in spite of all the wickedness of mankind, God still displays His love 
And his love is displayed, yes, in sending of sunshine, where it's dark outside, but it's sending sunshine and rain for all. His love is demonstrated in his acts of common grace to mankind, in his restraining grace. But he's most particularly seen in God's children, in his own children, in the, in the way that he comes and saves us. That's where the fullest extent of God's love takes shape, at the cross in Calvary, at the coming of our Lord Jesus, as he takes our, our flesh being made like us, and he takes our sin upon that cross. That is the greatest of loves. That is the greatest of all loves. It led them, yes. You want to see the connection with Ruth as well. It led them to be come in flesh into a field in Bethlehem. And I wonder, because God so often acted in this way and acts in this way with a, a kind of uh, twist, ironic. I wonder if one of those fields that belonged to Boaz ended up being the field where the, the angels announced the birth of a baby in Bethlehem. It is a baby that comes to Bethlehem. As Naomi and Ruth find refuge in Bethlehem, in the hands of Boaz, there is no refuge given. There is no rest given. Unlike Ruth, there was no place for rest for Jesus in Bethlehem. No godly man called Boaz to protect him. Instead, he had to make with a temporary place in an inn before he was driven out, having to flee into Egypt for his life. And this love took him all the way to the cross, there in the midst of darkness. Not the darkness of midnight, but the darkness of our own sin. He offered himself up for the sins of his people. This same Bethlehem, was where our Lord Jesus would come to incarnate and to be born in. So, do you know this God? Have you trusted him? This loving God. In light of his love, what do you do with it? The duty is yours. The duty of faith is yours. What will you do with God? Will he cover you with his wings? Will you take refuge in him? Will you trust him? Will he spread the robes of righteousness over the nakedness of your sinfulness? The robes of righteousness of Christ And what will you do, brother and sister, Christian, with this love? Will you tell it to others? Will you take the love of Christ for his wandering sheep to others out there? Out there? Or will you keep it? Will you be willing to take risks? Or will you keep quiet? Will you... Take every opportunity to speak of him, no matter the cost.
May the Lord help us to display his love, to shine as lights in this